Second Adventure, Part Two, of Master Flea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Bob Newfeld. Master Flea by E. T. A. Hoffman. Second Adventure, Part Two. How is it? said George Pepusch to himself when he had got into the street. How is it that one who has the command of a nice warm chamber and a well-stuffed bed wanders through the streets at night in the rain and storm? Because he has forgotten the house-key, and he is driven, moreover, by love. He could answer himself no otherwise, and indeed his whole conduct seemed silly in his own estimation. He remembered the moment when he saw Deutsche Elverdink for the first time. Some years before, the flea-tamer had exhibited his arts in Berlin, and had found no slight audiences as long as the thing was new. Soon, however, people had seen enough of the educated and well-disciplined fleas, and even the paraphernalia of the diminutive race began not to be thought so very wonderful, although at first attributed almost to magic and Leuwenhoek seemed to have fallen into total oblivion. Suddenly a report was spread that a niece of the artist, who had not appeared before, now attended the exhibitions, a beautiful, lovely little maiden, and withal so strangely attired as to baffle description. The world of fashionables, who, like leaders in a concert, are accustomed to give the time and tune to society, now poured in and, as in this world everything is in extremes, the niece excited unparalleled astonishment. It soon became the mode to frequent the flea-tamer. He, who had not seen his niece, could not join in the common talk, and thus the artist was saved in his distress. As to the rest, no one could comprehend the name Dortje, and, as at this time a celebrated actress was displaying, in the part of the Queen of Galconda, all those high yet soft attractions which are peculiar to the sex, they called the fair Hollander by the royal name Alina. When George Papouche came to Berlin, Leuwenhoek's fair niece was the talk of the day, and hence, at the table of the hotel where he lodged, scarcely anything else was spoken of but the little wonder that delighted all the men, young and old, and even the women themselves. Every one pressed the newcomer to place himself on the pinnacle of the existing mode at Berlin, and see the Hollandress. Pepusch had an irritable, melancholy temperament. In every enjoyment he found too much of the bitter aftertaste, which, indeed, comes from the Stygian brook that runs through our whole life. And this made him gloomy, and often unjust to all about him. It may be easily supposed that in this mood he was little inclined to run after pretty girls. But he went, nevertheless, to the flea-tamers, less on account of the dangerous wonder, than to confirm his preconceived opinion that here, too, as so often in life, a strange madness was predominating. He found the Hollandress fair, indeed, and agreeable, but in considering her, he could not help smiling with self-satisfaction at his own sagacity, by the help of which he had already guessed that the heads, which the little one had so perfectly turned, must have been tolerably crazy before they left home. The maiden had that light, easy manner which evinces the best education. A mistress of that delightful coquetry, 
which, when it offers the fingertips to any one, at the same time takes from him the power of receiving them, the lovely little creature knew how to attract her numerous visitors, as well as to restrain them within the bounds of the strictest decorum. None troubled themselves about the stranger, who had leisure enough to observe all the actions of the fair one. But while he continued staring more and more at the beautiful face, there awoke in the deepest recesses of his mind a dark recollection, as if he had somewhere before seen the Hollandress, although in other relations and in other attire, and that he himself had at one time worn a very different form. In vain he tormented himself to bring this recollection to any clearness, yet still the idea of his having really seen the little creature before became more and more determinate. The blood mounted into his face, when at last some one gently jogged him, and whispered in his ear, "'The lightning has struck you too, Mr. Philosopher, has it not?' It was his neighbour of the ordinary, to whom he had asserted that the ecstasy into which all had fallen was no better than madness, which would pass away as quickly as it had arisen. Pepusch observed that, while he had been gazing so fixedly on the little one, the hall had grown deserted. Now, for the first time, she seemed to be aware of his presence, and greeted him with graceful familiarity. From this time he could not get rid of her idea. He tormented himself through a sleepless night, only to come upon the trace of a recollection, but in vain. The sight of the fair one, he rightly thought, could alone bring him to it, and the next day, and all the following days, he never omitted visiting the flea-tamer, and staring two or three hours together at the beautiful Dorche Elverdink. When a man cannot get rid of the idea of a beautiful woman, who has riveted his attention, he has already made the first step towards love. Who would now trouble himself about the fleas, over whom Alina had gained so splendid a victory, attracting all within her own circle? The master himself felt that he was playing a somewhat silly part with his insects. He, therefore, locked up the whole troop for other times, and with much dexterity gave to his play another form, in which his niece played the principal character. He had hit upon the happy thought of giving evening entertainments at a tolerably high rate of subscription, in which, after he had exhibited a few optical illusions, the farther amusement of the company rested with his niece. Here the social talents of the fair one shone in full measure, and she took advantage of the least pause in the entertainment to give a new impulse to the party by songs, which she herself accompanied on the guitar. Her voice was not powerful, her manner was not imposing, often even against rule, but the sweetness and clearness of tone completely answered to her appearance and when from her dark eyelashes she darted the soft glances, like gentle moonbeams amongst the spectators, every breast heaved, and the censure of the most confirmed pedant was silenced. Papouche diligently prosecuted his studies in these evening entertainments. That is, he stared for two hours together at the Hollandress, and then left the hall with the rest of the company. Once he stood nearer to her than usual, and distinctly heard her saying to a young man, "'Tell me, who is that lifeless spectre that every evening stares at me for hours, and then disappears without a syllable?' Pepusch was deeply hurt, and made such a clamour in his chamber, 
and acted so wildly that no friend could have recognized him in his mad freaks. He swore high and low never again to see the malicious Hollandress, but for all that did not fail appearing at Leuwenhoek's on the very next evening, at the usual hour, to stare at the lovely Dorcha more fixedly, if that were possible, than ever. It is true, indeed, that even upon the steps he was mightily alarmed at finding himself there, and in all haste adopted the wise resolution of keeping quite a distance from the fascinating creature. He even carried this plan into effect by creeping into a corner of the hall. But the attempt to cast down his eyes failed entirely, and, as before said, he gazed on the Hollandress more determinedly than ever. Yet he did not know how it happened that suddenly Dorcha Elverdink was standing in his corner close beside him. With a voice that was melody itself, the fair one said, "'I do not remember, sir, having seen you anywhere before our meeting here at Berlin, and yet I find in your features, in all your manner, so much that seems familiar. Nay, it is as if in times long past we had been very intimate.' but in a distant country and in other relations. I entreat you, free me from this uncertainty, and, if I am not deceived by some resemblance, let us renew the friendship which floats in dim recollection like some delightful dream. George Pepusch felt strangely at this address. His breast heaved, his forehead glowed, and a shudder ran through all his limbs as if he had lain in a violent fever though this might mean nothing else than that he was overhead and ears in love yet there was another cause for this perturbation which robbed him of all speech and almost of his senses when dorcha elverdink spoke of her belief that she had known him long before it seemed to him as if another image was presented to his inward mind as in a magic lantern and he perceived a long removed self which lay far back in time the idea that by much meditation had assumed a clear and firm shape flashed up in this moment and this was nothing less than that dorcha elverdink was the princess gamache daughter of king sekakis whom he had loved in a remote period when he flourished as the thistle seherit it was well that he did not communicate this fancy to other folks as he would most probably have been reckoned mad and confined as such although the fixed idea of a partial maniac may often, perhaps, be nothing more than the illusions of a preceding existence. "'Good God! You seem dumb, sir,' said the little one, touching George's breast with the prettiest finger imaginable, and from the tip of it shot an electric spark into his heart, and he awoke from his stupefaction. He seized her hand in a perfect ecstasy, covered it with burning kisses, and exclaimed, heavenly angelic creature etc etc the kind reader will easily imagine all that george pepusch would exclaim in such a moment it is sufficient to say that she received his love protests as kindly as could be wished and that the fateful moment in the corner of leuwenhoek's hall brought forth a love affair that first raised the good george pepusch up to heaven and then again plunged him into hell as he happened to be of the melancholy temperament, and withal pettish and suspicious, Dorcha's conduct could not fail of giving rise to many little jealousies. 
Now it was precisely these jealousies that tickled Dorch's malicious humour. And it was her delight to torment the poor George Pepusch in a variety of ways. But as everything can be carried only to a certain point, so at last the long-smothered resentment of the lover blazed forth. He was speaking of that wondrous time when he, as the thistle Zaharit, had so dearly loved the fair Hollandress, who was then the daughter of King Secaucus, and was reminding her, with all the fire of love, that the circumstance of his battle with the leech-prince had given him the most incontestable right to her hand. On her part she declared that she well remembered it, and had already felt the foreboding of it, when Pepusch gazed on her with the thistle-glance. She spoke, too, so sweetly of these wonderful matters, seemed so inspired with love to the thistle, Zaharit, who had been destined to study at Jena and then again find the Princess Gamaha in Berlin, that George Pepusch fancied himself in the El Dorado of all delight. The lover stood at the window, and the little one suffered her enamoured friend to wind his arm about her. In this familiar position they caressed each other, for to that at last came the dreamy talk about the wonders in Famagusta, when it chanced that a handsome officer of the guards passed by in a brand-new uniform, and familiarly greeted the little one, whom he knew from the evening entertainments. Dorcha had half-closed her eyes and turned away her head from the streets, so that one would have thought it was impossible for her to see the officer but great is the magic of a fine new uniform the little one roused perhaps by the clatter of the sabre on the pavement opened her eyes broad and bright twisted herself from george's arm flung upon the window threw a kiss to the officer and watched him till he had disappeared round the corner gamaye shouted george pepusch quite beside himself gamaye what is this do you mock me is this the faith you have promised to your thistle the little one turned round upon her heel burst into a loud laughter and exclaimed oh go george if i am the daughter of the worthy old king secaucus if you are the thistle zaharit that dear officer is the genius tatel who in fact pleases me much better than the sad thorny thistle with this she darted away through the door while George Pepusch, as might be expected, fell immediately into a fit of desperation, and rushed down the steps as if he had been driven by a thousand devils. Fate would have it that he met a friend in a post-chaise who was leaving Berlin, upon which he called out, Halt! I go with you! flew home, donned a greatcoat, put money in his purse, gave the key of his room to the hostess, seated himself in the chaise, and posted off with his friend. Notwithstanding this hostile separation, his love for the fair Hollandress was by no means extinguished, and just as little could he resolve to give up the fair claims, which, as the thistle Zaharit, he thought he had to the hand and heart of Gamahe. He renewed, therefore, his pretensions, when some years afterwards he met with Leuwenhoek again at The Hague and how zealously he followed her in Frankfurt, the reader has learnt already. George Pepusch was wandering through the streets at night, quite inconsolable, when his attention was attracted by an unusually bright light that fell upon the street from a crevice in the window-shutter in the lower room of a large house. 
he thought that there must be fire in the chamber, and swung himself up by means of the iron-work to look in. Boundless was his surprise at what he saw. A large fire blazed in the chimney, which was opposite to the window, before which sat, or rather lay, the little Hollandress in a broad, old-fashioned armchair, dressed out like an angel. She seemed to sleep, while a withered old man knelt before the fire, and with spectacles on his nose peeped into a kettle, in which he was probably brewing some potion. Papouche was trying to raise himself higher to get a better view of the group, when he felt himself seized by the legs, and violently pulled down. A harsh voice exclaimed, "'Now only see the rascal! To the watch-house, my master!' It was the watchman, who had observed George climbing up the window, and could not suppose otherwise than that he wanted to break into the house. In spite of all protestations, George Pepouche was dragged off by the watchman, to whose help the patrol had hastened, and thus his nightly wandering ended merrily in the watch-house. End of Second Adventure, Part Two